Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Coming up on the Science Revolution this week, Dr. Michael Mann is here on heat, sea levels, in the Amazon. Oh, my Environmental scientist and writer Dana Nucitelli drops by on Michael Moore's Planet of the Humans documentary. He explains how it peddles dangerous climate denialism. And journalist David Sirota is exposing the coronavirus cover-up. In Geeky Science, I'm discussing the importance of biodiversity and how the future of the Amazon may depend on taper poop. Dana Nucitelli, the environmental scientist, writer, and author of Climatology versus Pseudoscience, a regular contributor to the Yale Center for Environmental Communication, The Guardian, and Skeptical Science. Plus, uh, Dana has a master's degree in physics from UC Davis. YaleClimateConnections.org is his website. Dana1981 is your Twitter handle. Dana, welcome to the program. I wanted to talk to you about Michael Moore's he didn't make it. Apparently, he's promoting or put his name on it or something. I was horrified when I watched this thing. For people who haven't watched it, don't know what we're talking about here, you want to give us a brief sketch and then let's get into it. Sure. Thanks, Tom. Just a brief note that I'm just speaking on, on my behalf and not on behalf of Yale or anybody else. So basically, the premise of the film is that renewable energy like solar and wind power is no better than burning fossil fuels, and it's all just an illusion. And so we should just keep going with the status quo and instead work on other... I mean, they don't really propose any other solutions, but they kind of imply that some sort of end to growth is the solution we should be aiming for rather than shifting to cleaner technologies. That's the basic summary of the film. Okay, and you can build a strong argument that growth and the way that we grow and even population growth are all mitigating factors in this. And the movie does point out basically the scam of, you know, wood chip biomass. But outside of that, it seems like the basic message is, had these guys been making a movie about Thomas Edison back in the 1890s, they'd be saying, you know, his light bulb uh, it looks kind of nice, but it only burns for about 25 minutes. And, uh, you know, we should just go back to candles. And in fact, many of the statistics are way out of date. What is your specific critique of this documentary? There, there are a lot of very misleading scenes in there, but a lot of the scenes that look at clean technologies like solar panels and wind turbines, they were filmed kind of around the year 2010, when and these technologies have improved so fast, they've become so much cheaper and more efficient that if you're only looking at the technology from a decade ago, it's completely misrepresentative of what it can do today. Like solar panels have become something like 70-80% cheaper over the past decade, which is not mentioned anywhere in the film. They just do this a couple scenes looking at solar panels that are over a decade old, and it gives the impression that these are outdated, inefficient technologies that are, it's just, it's, it's sort of like looking at uh, cell phones and saying, and just looking at flip phones and saying, well, flip phones are terrible, and so cell phones are just not worthwhile when, you know, technology improves really fast. So you have to keep 
updating it, if you're going to sell them or release a film in 2020, it has to represent the technologies, the state of the technology in 2020, not in 2010. Um, so that's one problem. Uh, another problem is just the kind of the, uh, at one point they make the claim that because fossil fuels are required to kind of manufacture and install uh, these clean technologies, that it's no better than a fossil just continuing to burn fossil fuels in power plants, which is just it's an absurdly wrong claim because um, scientists do these things called life cycle assessments that look at the carbon footprint associated with these things, manufacturing, installation, lifelong operation, and decommissioning of all kinds of power plants. And these life cycle assessments show that renewable technologies like wind and solar are have a much, much, much smaller overall lifetime carbon footprint than coal and natural gas do, something like 20 times smaller. But uh, mm. the film doesn't do any kind of these like uh, quantitative assessments. It doesn't compare the numbers. It just says, well, because the carbon footprint of uh, solar and wind isn't zero, then it's no better than a coal burning power plant, which is completely ridiculous. And just like that, the most misleading claim in the entire film is just flat out insanely false. When this uh, documentary first came out, it screened at uh, one of the big film festivals. It does go after a couple of sacred cows in the green movement, specifically Al Gore and Bill McKibben, and essentially accuses them of being less than honest or being on the take. And specifically with regard to biomass, both of them have loudly, publicly uh, reversed or walked away from any position on biomass. And in every other regard, it seems like these are just like really great people who are doing good work. After the film came out and, and they walked back those positions, but you know, then continued doing what they're doing, which I salute. My understanding is that Michael Moore pulled this film out of distribution, but then it just went over to YouTube, which is where, what, some five million people have seen it now. What's the story here with this thing? How did this film get made? What, why is Michael Moore's name on it? Um, yeah, I mean, Jeff Gibbs was the director, but Michael Moore was the producer on it. So I think Jeff Gibbs did most of the work and kind of brought Michael Moore on board with it. Um, I believe it was, there's a, a group called Films for Action that had originally distributed it, and then they pulled it, and then they decided that they didn't want to get the kind of backlash and, and uh, to draw more attention to it by pulling it, so they put it back on uh, to their distribution uh, website. Uh, but it's primarily been viewed on YouTube. I think it's been viewed more than 7 million times on YouTube. It hasn't been picked up by very many other distributors for probably because of mm-hmm. the very misleading nature of it. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the attacks, especially on Bill McKibben, are, are pretty ridiculous because Bill McKibben has spent basically his entire career trying to slow climate change. And it, it, it paints him as, as this villain who's trying to, like, burn entire forests for energy or something like that. Uh, when, I mean, in the past, he has, in some cases, supported uh, using uh, wood-burning um, facilities for, for small uh, energy production, which, I mean, it, it, on, in his defense, it's a very complicated issue because, there are ways to do to burn wood sustainably if you're using waste wood, wood that's you know harvested that's not uh, suitable for other uses. Then it can't be done sustainably. It's just that in practice it hasn't been done sustainably, and that's why more groups and individuals have kind of come out against uh, burning wood for energy, just because it's, in practice it hasn't been done very sustainably. And so that's why since somewhere around 2016, Bill McKibben has very strongly been against burning wood for for for, for fuel. And again, this film came out in 2020, and you know, for the last four years, he's been very strong against it. And the, and the film, at no point, mentioned that it, it portrayed him as this, as this, you know, wood-burning villain who's trying to basically clear-cut forests and burn them for energy, which is just not at all. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's particularly weird 
given, you know, that the go-to message of the film is cut growth, cut population, and Bill McKibben's first book was titled Just One. It was a plea to only have one child. <laughs> yeah, I mean, his, I mean, exactly, his entire career, he's been trying to find the best possible solutions, and at, some, at one point, you know, in the past, it seemed like Burning Wood, if done sustainably, could be a viable solution, at least on small scales, and, you know, things change, again, technologies change, and our practices change, and people change their opinions accordingly, and so... I don't know why they decided to make him out as a villain in the film. And I mean, there's a very same, a similar story for Al Gore, who again, for his career, is trying to do what he could to solve the climate crisis. And nobody's perfect, but they're all doing their best. And to portray them as villains like on the same footing as the Koch brothers or something like that is just, it's really ridiculous. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. And, you know, I lived in Vermont for 10 years and we, we heated with wood. I mean, you know, a lot of people do. Right. Uh, but, you know, yeah, we also had some acreage and, and, you know, we cut our own wood and I lit it every, I mean, it, that's a whole different thing than, than the whole power plant thing. It's fascinating and I, I wanted to get the message out there that if you've seen this movie, you're only getting, you know, a fraction of the story and, and you need to get the rest of the story. Dana Nuticelli, uh, environmental scientist, writer, author of Climatology versus Pseudo science, regular contributor to you know, all kinds of sites, including the Guardian, YaleClimateConnections.org. Thank you, Dana. Thanks for dropping by today. Thanks, Tom. Good talking with you. So some of you may recall back years ago, I had a, a biologist on this program. His name was Stuart Pym, a well-known, well-celebrated biologist who was explaining to us how bears pooping in the woods were cycling salmon into the forests and keeping the forests healthy. And it was absolutely fascinating. I'll just recap it very, very, very quickly because we're seeing a new version of this happening right now down in the Amazon. What Stuart explained was that there were parts of the Pacific Northwest where the forests were not healthy. And they couldn't figure out why. These were forests that had uh, rivers and streams running through them, and trees were just starting to die out or become more vulnerable to beetles and things like that. These very specific local areas of illness for these forests. And then, in a couple of cases, they had had dams on these streams and rivers. They took out the dams. There's been a big effort in the Pacific Northwest here over the last 30 years to remove dams. They took out the dams, and all of a sudden, the forest came back to life. And it was like, how did that happen? What's the relationship between the dam 30 miles downriver and the forest? And it turned out that one of the nutrients that forests need is iodine. Trees need a very, very small, you know, almost infinitesimal amount, but they need it. It's a trace element that's essential for some species of trees. And the iodine was being absorbed by salmon in the ocean. And then, you know, every year when they swim up river to spawn, those salmon, well, they were hitting the dams and they weren't making it up river. When they took the dam out, the salmon were coming up river and the bears were catching them out of the water and walking back into the woods and eating them. And then the bear poop was fertilizing the forest with that iodine. And it was bringing these forests back to life. Well, we're seeing the same thing now happening in the Amazon, only it's not so much micronutrients, although I'm sure that that's a piece of it that they haven't gotten around to studying yet. But there are these uh, animals, Tapirus terrestris, also known as tapirs, T-A-P-I-Rs. They have a long snout and they're about the size of a dog. 
kind of pig-like, more or less. Turns out that tapirs are the only animals in the forest that can successfully eat very large seeds that jungle trees produce and then transport those seeds miles away and poop them out intact so that those trees are moving, are spreading, are, are, are being spread around. And one of the things that is happening now as a consequence of deforestation in the Amazon, and this is the critical piece, how everything fits together, it's all these small pieces. There's increasing evidence that the tapers are being killed off in part because of deforestation. The forest can no longer maintain their populations. And as the tapers are killed off, the ability of the jungle trees, these giant trees in the jungles, to regrow forests after they've burned and things are diminishing. This is how it all happens. It's like we think that these complex systems are ultimately not complex, that they're somehow very, very simple systems. They're not. Most people would not think, oh, gee, you know, if, if they cut out my stomach or if they took out my liver or if they removed my brain, I could still be just fine, right? Some, some essential organ. And yet we look at complex ecosystems and don't realize that they have all these complex and absolutely required pieces to them too. It's a lesson that you would think would be self-evident, but apparently is not. It's really unfortunate. Michael Mann, in addition to writing dire predictions, understanding climate change, the hockey stick and the climate wars, dispatches from the front lines. He basically invented the hockey stick that Al Gore popularized. His book, The Madhouse Effect with Tom Tolles, his children's book, The Tantrum that Saved the World, a press release from Penn State University. Dr. Michael Mann, distinguished professor of atmospheric sciences and director of Penn State's Earth Systems Science Center at Penn State, has been elected to the National Academy of Sciences, recognizing distinguished and continuing achievements in original research. Membership in the NAS is one of the highest honors given to any scientist or engineer in the United States. By the way, National Academy of Sciences was established in 1863, signed into law by President Lincoln specifically to recognize achievement in science and then basically to ask those people who are members of the academy to be advisors in the areas of science, engineering, health policy, et cetera, science basically, to be advisors to the federal government and any agency that may need help from the federal government. I mean, this is, this is incredible. Dr. Michael Mann, congratulations, sir. Michael Mann, M-A-N-N dot net, by the way, is the website. Michael, thank you so much for being with us today, and congratulations. Uh, thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure, my friend. I have a bunch of questions. The first, and I think this is a kind of a broad one for you being one of the top climate scientists on the planet, is has this level of economic shutdown, you know, we were warned a couple, two, three years ago that we had 10 years. The IPCC said, you guys don't get your emissions down to this level within 10 years. All hell is going to break loose. I'm wondering, you know, I, I take a walk now. The sky is clear. I can see Mount Hood down, you know, 100 miles away as if it was next door. There are literally no jet trails in the sky. We live near an airport. Maybe one, one plane takes off an hour. Are we there yet? I mean, it, it has the coronavirus shut down world activity, has it taken us to 100% of the IPCC's goal for 2020? Or are we only 50%? I mean, where, and what does this tell us about what we need to do going forward to achieve those goals? 
Yeah, all great questions. And the reality is somewhat sobering. What feels like a shutdown of our entire economy and certainly a, a very substantial decrease in transportation and carbon emissions generated from transportation, uh, what seems like life-changing changes in lifestyle have only gotten us about maybe 6 to 8% reduction in carbon emissions. And we need to bring those carbon emissions down by 10% every year for the next decade if we're going to avoid crossing that threshold of uh, dangerous planetary warming. So that gives you an idea of the challenge, the monumental challenge that we face here. Even these what feel like draconian changes um, in lifestyle haven't even gotten us the 10% that we need for this year. And then we've got to go beyond that another 10% next year and even further cuts another 10% the next year. What this drives home for me and I think a lot of my colleagues is that individual behavioral change, it's part of the solution, but that alone isn't going to get us where we need to go. If we're going to achieve those sorts of reductions, then we need support at the highest level. We need governmental policies that will incentivize a shift away from fossil fuels to renewable energy, and we need politicians, right, who are actually going to support those policies, who are going to do what's right for us and the planet rather than what's in the best interest of the powerful vested interests who often fund their campaigns. So it sounds to me like the essence of what you're saying, Dr. Mann, is that we have used a relatively blunt instrument, this brute force thing of everybody just stay home for three months now to bend the curve down by 6% but we've got to yeah. hit 10%. The Republicans and the fossil fuel industry are going to say, okay, you've got the, you know, a, another great depression as a result of just 6%, and you want more? And your response right. sounds to me like what you're saying is, yes, we can get a larger carbon emission reduction without the Great Depression by doing it smart exactly instead right. of doing it with a sledgehammer. That's exactly right, Tom. In fact, it's the opposite, right, of what, of what the talking points of the, the critics would hold. Actually, as we know, moving to renewable energy generates all sorts of new jobs. Uh, it's good for the economy, and obviously it's much better for the planet. So it's win-win. There's no reason not to do it. The only obstacle right now is, as I alluded to, the fact that we have you know, fossil fuel interests who are currently essentially running our government under the Trump administration. We need to replace that government. We have an election coming up in months. We need to vote in politicians who will act on this problem before it's too late, before we truly do destroy the livability of this planet for future generations. Yeah, well, given that a coal lobbyist is running the Environmental Protection Agency and an oil lobbyist is running yep. the Interior Department, I would say we're, we're a full capture here. Yeah. Another story that has been haunting me, it's, it's popped up all over the place. It started the science magazines and it's migrated into the popular press, is that the, uh, the, the so-called wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees Celsius you know, wet bulb is where basically it's it's so hot and the humidity is so high that humans cannot evaporate perspiration enough to cool themselves down. It's the old, you know, it doesn't feel hot in Arizona because the air is so dry. But, you know, even 10 degrees, you know, even something in the 90s rather than in the hundreds, if you're surrounded by 80 percent humidity, will kill you. That this is going to be the new normal for much of the uh, equatorial regions of the planet and could endanger literally billions of humans. Can you tell us about that? What is what is the state of this science? How certain it is it? What kind of time frame are you looking at? Yeah, sure. So this uh, recent study highlights this problem, but it's something that we've known. The fact is a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture. 
So in general, uh, you get more humid conditions in places like the tropics, and it gets hotter. So it gets hotter and more humid. And we all know from our own experiences that it's those very hot, very humid summer days that really do a number on us, that make it very difficult to be outside, uh, to be active. And as you allude to, that becomes the new normal. Think of the hottest, most humid summer day you've ever experienced. We'll simply call that summer by mid-century. That will be the typical conditions that we expect to see in the summer here, even in the mid-latitudes, if we continue on the path that we're on. And there are regions, a large swath in the tropics, where that combination of heat and humidity will literally be deadly. It will be too hot and human uh, for human beings. And so what we're talking about, as we all know, is less space, less land for us because the tropics become unlivable, because our coastlines become flooded. Some of our largest coastal regions become flooded because of sea level rise. So there's less land, there's less fresh water, there's less food. And there's 7.8 billion and growing people on this planet. That's a prescription for a disaster if we don't do something now. And by doing something, I'm assuming you're talking about getting carbon emissions under control. Yeah, I'm talking about uh, voting Donald Trump out of office, of course. But no, absolutely. (laughs) That's the first step. But what we need, uh, indeed, is policies at the highest level. We need the U.S., to actually become a leader again when it comes to the the worldwide efforts to avert catastrophic climate change. And we had that leadership under Barack Obama. Sure, we can fault certain policies here or there, but we were on the right track. And of course, under Trump, we've headed off in the wrong direction now. Dr. Michael Mann, his uh, most recent book, The Madhouse Effect, his website, michaelmann.net, M-A-N-N.net, and you can tweet him at Michael Mann. Dr. Mann, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great talking with you. It's always great talking. Thank you. You too, Tom. Thanks. Sponsoring the interview this week is New Leaf Natural CBD Oil. Boy, with all this flying around, you know, I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti, or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. I think it's the proper way to say that. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Naturals CBD oil is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S., when you use the code TOM, it's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NULeafNaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, NULeafNaturals.com. That's NULeafNaturals.com. That's NULeafNaturals.com. Code TOM, it's spelled T-H-O-M. NULeafNaturals.com. On the line with us is our old friend David Sirota, one of America's best investigative reporters, Previously, he was a senior advisor and speechwriter for Bernie Sanders' campaign for president. His website is sirota.substack.com and his Twitter handle, David Sirota. David has been doing some remarkable stuff. He's got a new newsletter out called Too Much Information, TMI. It's really worth checking out. It really is. David, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Uh, You've got this new piece about a coronavirus cover-up is already starting. Tell me about this. Sure. So, look, I I think we all have to be on the lookout for the attempts to preemptively stop 
an inquiry into not only what went wrong generally on the handling of coronavirus, but an inquiry that holds accountable the people who in our government who made, if not incompetent decisions, then malicious decisions. There is an entire ideology out there, best articulated, by the way, by Barack Obama, who famously or infamously said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but we can't look backwards, we always have to look forwards. And that was used to kind of prevent an inquiry into the transgressions of the Bush administration. There was a push for Mm -hmm. an inquiry into the Iraq war lies, et cetera, et cetera. We are seeing the same ideology now coming out of the political class in Washington, coming from Republican political operatives, and even in terms of some legislation from some Democrats. Let me give you some examples. The bailout bill that was passed included very little oversight, One Democratic leader immediately came out and said that the oversight panel of the bailout bill would not be looking back at the actions of the Trump administration in terms of how it mishandled the lead up to the coronavirus crisis. You had Donald Trump himself and his administration undermining almost right out of the gate after that bailout bill was passed, undermining the oversight panel's power to oversee the money that's going out that will be going out from that bill. Well, he did that with a signing statement, too, didn't he? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So, again, it's an attempt to not have us look at what went wrong. You saw there was a a widely circulated op-ed in Washington Post by one of their longtime political reporters who said, you know, maybe we we do need to have a commission that looks into what went wrong, but maybe that commission should be headed by Barack Obama and George W. Bush. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that if you're going to take a serious look at what happened in the lead up to the coronavirus crisis, Donald Trump deserves a lot of blame. But you have to have a systemic look at all the policies that were put in place that made us so vulnerable to this. And, and that means looking at the Bush and Obama administration. And then the most amazing one. Well, I, how, about, how about Clinton giving Bush and Reagan a pass on Iran-Contra, just like Jerry Ford gave Nixon a pass on the treason that he committed blowing up the Vietnam peace talks in 68? Exactly. And what you're alluding to is that there is a tradition in American politics of creating these, under the guise of bipartisanship, creating panels, blue ribbon commissions and the like, which are which are ostensibly about finding fact finding, but in practice end up being about a cover up. And all of these calls for, quote, bipartisanship you have to be on the lookout for, are those calls really designed to try to bury the facts? And I mean, the most amazing one to me was there was, a, there was an op-ed, in the, another op-ed in the Post by Mitch Daniels, who was the uh, former uh, governor of, of Indiana, Republican, former Bush administration official, and he's now the president of a, of a university in Indiana. And he basically said, you know, when this is over, let's hope that partisanship doesn't dominate our look back. And again, what it alludes to is it's all setting the stage for when this is over, uh, God willing, when it's over, the idea that it would somehow be uncouth, impolite, uh, and hyper-partisan, too partisan, to ever look back and hold accountable the people in the government who have made such disastrous decisions. That's what the, what this is all really setting the stage for, is an effort to make sure that there is no accountability at all. I think the largest part of the frame that is always removed, excised from any news discussion about the United States' response to the coronavirus 
is the fact that there have been more cases of coronavirus discovered in the White House in the last few days than in Hong Kong or Taiwan or South Korea or Australia or New Zealand. Maybe there have been a few more in those countries, but pretty sure New Zealand hasn't had a case in four or five days. Hong Kong has so few new cases that they can no longer calculate R0, you know, the, the transmissibility formula. South Korea has been able to, they had one little outbreak as they've been opening their country back up and they traced it back to, I think it was a wedding or something, it was some sort of a public event. And now they're contact tracing, you know, they're, 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 they're literally spreading out to like 5,000 people to check this out. Other countries around the world have not just bent the curve or flattened the curve, they've crushed the virus. And here in the United States, we're just, well, you know, no problem. As long as it's happening among black people and Hispanics and meatpacking plants and black people in urban areas or, or the black belt of the South or old people in nursing homes who are just sucking up our Social Security and Medicare money that ultimately lead to an increase in taxes on rich people. As long as those are the only people dying, we got no problem with it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we, we've, we've failed to make the choices that we need to make, which is a logical set of choices are, on one hand, we can remain locked down. I'm not saying this is the way I think it should be, but if we're not going to have a serious regime of testing, like actually testing as many people as we can, then we must stay locked down. Or we're going to, quote unquote, reopen the economy, but with an extremely serious and strict set of testing measures to make sure that we are taking this virus seriously. Those would be two at least logical choices. I mean, they're not good choices either way, but we have decided to not make any choices and instead simply say, okay, we're not going to have a lockdown. We're not going to have the testing that other countries have had, and we're going to effectively force people back to work. And that goes beyond incompetence because that doesn't mean something's being mismanaged. That means something's being either unmanaged or actually actively maliciously managed. Because the the two choices I've laid out, they at least hold some logic to them. Okay, we're not going to test if people are going to stay home. Or we're going to send people back to work or we're going to test. Instead, not doing any of those things, we know what's going to happen. I mean, like, the science is extremely clear about what will happen if and when we do that. And as this begins to migrate into middle-class white America, particularly rural white America, red state America, and it's coming largely through the prisons and the meatpacking plants. I mean, you know, they don't have big airports like New York City does, but it's coming. As that happens, I'm hopeful that the conversation is going to change. David Sirota. David, thank you so much. Too much information. TMI is the newsletter. David, is there a website just for the newsletter? Yeah, you can go to my website, davidsirota.com. You'll find it right there. DavidSorota.com. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. I just want to toss in, apropos of nothing that I've been talking about up to this point, but just kind of a separate question, something that I have been noticing. And I've been talking to friends and neighbors and relatives and whatnot, and everybody seems to be noticing this, which is that... We have been, Louise and I have been in lockdown, as it were. We have been in this house. I mean, you know, we go out for walks and we occasionally drive to some place where we can pick up restaurant food to go. But, you know, outside of that, we ba- and, we, and we haven't really seen anybody else. Uh, we've been in this house for two months now. It's May 11th, and I'm pretty sure that March 12th was the day that we started this. I might be off by a day or two, but, 
But, you know, it was right around that time, first week of March, second week of March. And it really struck me last night, Louise and I were talking about how fast time seems to have flown. And I wonder if that's because of the way, some, some little quirk in the way that the human mind processes the passage of time. Is it possible that we process the passage of time, or at least we sort the passage of time, by unique events? If you think of the past, the river of time, as, as like a river, and there are little stones that stick out of it and stick up high enough that you can notice them, right? And those little stones are events. You know, hey, I went to dinner with my kids. I went to the theater. I, I saw this movie. I, you know, we drove up to, up to Seattle and had dinner with somebody or, you know, whatever it may be, right? These are the events that we use as landmarks or uh, milestones to define time for ourselves. And when you strip away those events, so that every day is pretty much the same as every other day, and you're always in the same place, and you're binge-watching the same shows, and whatever it may be, that time just kind of collapses into just this one amorphous blur. I'm just speculating. I wonder if you're having the same experience. So anyhow, I was talking about Trump having no plan. The plan, and I laid this out to Congressman Khanna in the previous hour, I think it's very straightforward. I think Donald Trump knows that historically, and, and almost without exception, presidents get reelected when the economy is good and they don't get reelected when the economy is bad. It is a truism. I can't think of a single exception to it. I'm sure there's one or two out there, but you know this is the plan. And so he's trying to get the economy back together. The way to do that is to get people back to work and yeah, some people are going to die, but you know, again, from the Republican point of view, they're going to be old people in nursing homes, they're going to be Hispanic people in meatpacking plants, they're going to be black people in prisons and in poor urban areas, and don't worry, be happy. Now, I think this is frankly going to end badly, because I think that what Trump is doing by encouraging the second wave of the virus is it's going to start aggressively moving into white rural America. And when it does, there's going to be some real shock, unless they can cover it up. You've got several states now that are refusing to release, red states all, refusing to release their COVID statistics or burying them or saying they're confidential or even lying about them. And, you know, Florida, Nebraska, I mean, it's just, it's all over the place. But, you know, their, their basic straightforward plan is no additional unemployment benefits. They, you know, uh, Lindsey Graham has said we're going to extend that monthly bonus, that $600 a month bonus, over my dead body or over our dead bodies. He's speaking for the Republican caucus. No additional stimulus funds. Mitch McConnell is saying unless you give the corporations of America carte blanche immunity, nobody can sue them forever, not just during the emergency. You're not going to get a penny. Abolish Obamacare this week. The Trump administration is arguing before the Supreme Court that Obamacare is unconstitutional and we should go back to the days when your health insurance company could refuse to pay for your claims because they said, oh, that's a pre-existing condition. You have lung cancer now? Well, back when you were 17, you were smoking. They want to cut payroll taxes to wound Social Security so that they can privatize it. And of course, they want to pretend that the pandemic is just no big deal. And the key to the whole thing is to manufacture confusion, to just throw all kinds of stuff into the media hopper and just make people 
like, what? What's going on here? I don't know. What's going on? Is it bad? Is it not bad? Is it, you know, 80,000 people, 100,000 people dead? Yeah, but who were those people? Oh, it could have been car accidents. More people than that die with the flu. No, well, now we're past the flu, but, you know, blah, de, blah, de, blah. This is their strategy to get people back to work. There was a story in, in the paper this morning about this ice cream shop that reopened, and I think it was in Georgia. I could be wrong. But this ice cream shop reopened and they were requiring people to socially distance. And one of the people who worked there, it was, the owner described her as his best employee, 16-year-old girl, quit after the first day because all these Trumpies, these maggot hat people, the people who watch Fox News, listen to Right Wing Hate Radio, were coming in, refusing to wear masks, getting in her face, yelling at her, saying, I'm not gonna social distance, you're taking away my freedom. This is grim You're stuff. listening to the Tom Hartman program. Which leads me to my ultimate question. Do you think Donald Trump thinks that a civil war might get him reelected or keep him in office if he loses? That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.